Okay, that's the passage we're in. So again, in your black Bibles, that's page 918 and 919. We're going to be camped out in that chapter, so please follow along. Let me pray for us, and then we'll consider this passage together. God and Father, we give you thanks that you've given us your word. We give you thanks for the truth that is therein, and pray that you would bring it out to us today. We pray that you would be with me by your Holy Spirit, that the same thing that happened in Acts 10 would happen to us, that you would pour out your Holy Spirit upon us, that we would be filled with the Holy Spirit, that my mouth would be guided along by the Spirit to say all that your word has it to say. Pray that my mind would be fixed and focused on you, and pray that you'd be with our ears so that we might hear the good news of God today, and that we might let it in, we might believe it, we might worship you for it, and we might be changed by it. Come do all of this, we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> I grew up going to church. I grew up in the church. And so I remember that one of the songs we used to sing when we were kids in church was called Father Abraham. Right? Any of you know Father Abraham? Yeah, plenty of you know Father Abraham. Father Abraham went, Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. And then it turns from there and goes right hand, left hand, turn around, spin around, sit down. Until then, it's this massively theological song. And then it sort of devolves into Christian hokey pokey where you put your right hand in and your left hand out. Now, here's the thing. I sang that song with myself and the hundred other Indian kids in the Sunday school around me. And never once did it dawn on me or sink in the absolute craziness of what we were singing right? I mean, you think of that. A hundred Indian kids were in a room together, and we were singing. Father Abraham had many sons, and we were one of them. I mean, it never dawned on me to think that here this room of a hundred Indian kids were, were singing, were claiming to be descendants of Abraham, right? You know Abraham. Abraham as in the father of the Jewish people, Abraham. Twelve tribes of Israel, Abraham, the people who spoke Hebrew and celebrated Passover and ate kosher meals. And here we were in a room together singing that we were the descendants of Father Abraham. I've told you before, but the absurdity of that really only first hit me when I was watching a YouTube clip of this Korean preacher preaching in Korea. It was this clip, I remember, of this Korean preacher, and he's preaching to a stadium full of Korean people in Korea. And the sermon was in Korean, and so all I could do was read the English translation. And I remember hearing this preacher describe to this stadium full of Koreans how our fathers were in the wilderness, right? How they had left Egypt from slavery, and then our fathers were in the desert. And in Korean, I'm reading the translation of our fathers from the tribe of Zebulun and Naphtali, and I remember thinking to myself, does this guy know he's Korean, right? And I kid you not, it was like for the first time I looked down and realized, I have brown skin because I'm from India, like India, India. I'm as far removed from the 12 tribes as you could possibly be. I mean, you, you think of this. I, I have to Google Diwali, but I know exactly what Passover is. I couldn't tell you the first thing about the Bhagavad Gita or Krishna or Rama, but I could tell you all about the Torah and the Pentateuch and Moses and Yahweh. And you have to think to yourself, how did that happen? Or, or just last week, I was with Pastor Doug Logan, one of our friends who used to be at Epiphany Camden. And I noticed that on Doug's arm, 
is tattooed Jewish scripture. Now you think of that. Does Doug know that he's an African-American man with Hebrew scripture tattooed on his arm? And you, you think, how did that happen? I don't know if this is polit politically correct, but you wouldn't expect to see a Chinese woman in a burqa. Or, or you'd take notice if you saw a Mexican man wearing a yarmulke. Or if you found a white European in a turban. So how is it then that an African-American has Jewish scripture on his forearm? Or that this Korean preacher was talking about Zebulun and Naphtali? Or a hundred Indian kids were singing about Father Abraham as though all of that made perfect sense. As though nothing about it caused anyone to blink. And if you would ask that question and we would ask that question, I would say to you, we wouldn't be the only ones asking the question. You know who else would ask that question? This man named Theophilus. If you remember, when we started the book of Acts, Dr. Luke was writing this book for the most excellent Theophilus. And we said together, a man who probably wasn't Jewish, probably was Roman, as in Gentile. And so Theophilus, like many of us, like just about everyone in this room, if not all of us in this room, Theophilus was geographically far removed from the, the book that he was holding in his lap. He was far removed from the stories of Israel and Abraham and Zebulun and Naphtali. He was far removed from it, not just geographically, but also socially. He was ethnically removed from it and nationally removed from it and racially removed from anything to do with God, Yahweh, or his people. And yet, Luke writes this book to let Theophilus know you belong. You, you really belong here. Theophilus, you are not the red-headed stepchild in this family. You're not sort of artificially in, but we know who's really in, and you're sort of on the out. He's written this book to let Theophilus know you really are a child of Abraham. A book to tell him, Theophilus, you should get the tattoo on your forearm. You should learn of your father, Naphtali and Zebulun. You should sing Father Abraham with all your might because you're really in. You're really one of God's people. You're really a child of Abraham. And more than that, you, Theophilus, really are a child of God. And Luke would say to you, you know how I know? You know how I know Theophilus, or you know how I know Korean preacher, or you know how I know Doug Logan, or you know how I know Seven Mile Road? And then Luke would say, let me tell you the story of a man named Cornelius. And when you hear his story, it'll all make sense. We are today in Acts chapter 10. And Acts 10 is essentially the point of no return in the book of Acts. Here's what I mean. Till now, the Jesus movement, the message of Jesus, the gospel, has pushed a little bit. It's pushed past Jerusalem. It's spilled over into Samaria. It's gone a little bit further with Stephen in chapter 7 and Philip in chapter 8. But by and large, from Acts 1 all the way to Acts 9, what you have are Jewish men preaching from the Jewish scriptures about a Jewish Messiah in predominantly Jewish cities to largely Jewish people. But in Acts 10, in Acts 10, the Jesus movement will jump the Jewish fence and spill over into the Gentile world. And once it does, it can never be pulled back. You see, after Acts 10, you could never reel this thing back in. 
Till then, it was a largely Jewish movement, but after Acts 10, it's like the dam is broken and the gospel floods out and now we'll go to the ends of the earth. It won't stop until you've got Koreans and African Americans and Indians and people from the world over. That's Acts 10. So what I want to do is I want to tell you the story and at the end just make two simple observations with a multitude of ways in which we can apply it. Okay, so here's the story. It's a great story. It begins with a man named Cornelius. That's 10 verse 1. Here's what it says. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. So Luke introduces us to an Italian man. He's Roman. That is, he's a Gentile. He's not Jewish. And as an Italian, as a Roman, that means that Cornelius had at his fingertips a pantheon of gods and goddesses for him to pick from, anyone that he wanted for him to worship. And yet, this particular Roman turns away from his polytheistic buffet of options and instead turns himself to the God of Israel, to Yahweh, to Jehovah. And Luke goes on to tell us that not only is he drawn to Yahweh, in verse 2 we're told that he's a devout man, that he, and leading his family, fears God, that he gives alms to the poor, that he prays regularly. And so one day, this man named Cornelius, who is seeking Yahweh, probably is in prayer in the afternoon prayer time when a vision comes to him. This is verse 3. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers in your arms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. So catch this. Cornelius, this Roman Gentile man outside of the people of God, gets this vision where an angel comes to him and essentially says, I want you to go and fetch this one man named Peter. He's living with a man named Simon. And essentially, the next verses will tell us, he's going to come to your house and he's going to declare a message by which you and your whole household will be saved. Now, as a two-second aside, you can't help but ask yourself, if God went through the trouble of sending an angel to give Cornelius a message, why didn't the angel just deliver the message? Right? Couldn't you picture Cornelius going, sure, Lord, I can go and fetch Peter, or you could just tell me yourself since you're already here, right? It would save me a trip. You could, you're here anyway. Why is that? It's like one preacher is fond of often saying, it's like Christian mission is God's cosmic take your kid to work day, right? That's what Christian mission is. This entire thing called Christian evangelism is essentially God in heaven taking his kids to work, right? And, and when you take your kids to work, it does not increase your efficiency at work, right? You, you do that not because this kid is essential to your job. You do that because that's what it means to be a father with children. So the Lord God has pulled us into his global work, not because you add an ounce of efficiency to his mission, not because you're essential to the mission, not because you are needed, but because he's a good dad who ropes his children in. The staggering thought that we should be chosen, pulled into what Jesus is doing. But not only that, because in Acts 10, this isn't just a chapter about an angel and Cornelius' individual salvation. Does that make sense? 
This isn't just about one Roman man named Cornelius in the city of Caesarea getting saved and becoming right with Jesus. Acts 10 is about much more than that. Acts 10 is opening the door so that now a Korean would know the name Zebulun and an African-American would have tattoos of Jewish scripture and so that Indians would sing Father Abraham. You see, Acts 10 is opening the door to the Gentile world. Acts 10 is breaking the dam so that the gospel can spill out to the ends of the earth. And so for that to happen, God will need to appear not just to the centurion, but it'll also need to appear to the apostle as well. You see, because in Acts 10, two different visions come to two different people. Because God needs to not only convert the Gentile centurion, he also, in Acts 10, has to convert the Apostle Peter. And so, in verse 9, you're going to see the camera sort of pan out of Caesarea and now focus in on a different city some miles away. It's essentially, verse 9 is saying, while this was happening, meanwhile, over in Joppa, right? While Cornelius was having this happen in Caesarea, meanwhile, over in Joppa, at one Simon the Tanner's house was the Apostle Peter. And verse 9 shifts there. It's lunchtime. Peter's hungry. It's sort of like those Snickers commercials, you know, you're not you when you're hungry. That's what it is for Peter. Peter's not himself. In fact, Peter falls into a trance in his hungry state, and he's up on a roof, and suddenly a sheet comes down from heaven. This is verse 10. It says, And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. Did you catch the vision? One preacher said, this is the original pig in a blanket, which I thought was brilliant, by the way. Did you not think that that would... I laugh for a half hour, right? From heaven comes this sheet with all kinds of animals, the text says. Right? Every kind of animal. All kinds of animals and reptiles and birds. So if it walks or crawls or flies, it was on this sheet. Now, you have no idea exactly what this spread looked like, but I can tell you, Peter... Peter found it more disgusting than appetizing. It's sort of like if I told you this afternoon lunch would be fried cat, right? You see the way you look at me? No problem. You see the way you look at me in considering that? That's sort of the way it would have been for Peter, right? When Peter saw this sheet with every kind of animal, his response to it was to recoil at it, to be disgusted by it, to think of it the way that you would think about fried cat. Because you know what Peter says? Verse 14. He says what? By no means, Lord. By no means. Look at verse 14. By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. Do you hear what Peter says? Peter says to this vision from heaven, by no means. I've never come anywhere near anything that is common or unclean. And then Sevma Road, would you listen to what God says in response? Look at verse 15. But the Lord said... What God has made clean, do not call common. And listen, that happens three times. 
The vision comes from heaven of this sheet with all these animals. Rise, Peter, kill it and eat. And Peter responds to that by saying, by no means, Lord. I've never come anywhere near that. And the vision comes from heaven saying, what God has called common, what God has made clean, do not call common. Second time, what God has made clean, do not call common. Third time, Peter, what God has made clean, do not call common. Now listen, when you read what follows, it becomes immediately obvious, doesn't it? That the food is not the point. The food is an object lesson. It's like you teach your kids and you use object lessons to teach them. So likewise, the food is just an object lesson. What's the lesson? The Jewish people had prided themselves on being the chosen and acceptable and clean people of God. Just like the clean foods. Whereas everybody that's not Jewish is therefore unacceptable and unchosen and unclean. And their entire understanding of themselves is we're God's favorites. God has chosen us. We're the clean people. And all the Gentiles are unacceptable and unclean. You see, that queasy feeling you have about thinking about fried cat, that's the feeling Peter had when he thought about associating with or connecting with or befriending, or being near, or sitting under the same roof of, or sitting at the same table of a Gentile. It was an unthinkable thing for Peter. He was a faithful Jew, and Jews called Gentiles dogs. They built customs and traditions to separate themselves from one another. You, as a faithful Jew, couldn't go into the house of a Gentile, much less sit at his table, much less, God forbid, eat his food. I mean, such a thing was not possible for you but here's the thing God had done something to take that which was unclean and make it clean you know how, how did Peter not get he's living post Jesus God had done something hadn't he to make unclean people clean this was what the object lesson was that God had done something through Jesus to make unclean people clean I still remember when my daughter Hannah was just two or three years old you're a Christian dad, you're trying to find every opportunity to share the gospel, to communicate the good news of Jesus in every setting, in any way that you can. And I remember as a three-year-old, Hannah had played with blue chalk or blue paint, right? When a three-year-old plays with blue paint, there's nothing on the paper, it's all over them. So she's painted in blue now. And so now I, as a good dad, I'm going to help her clean her hands. So I still remember... We go to a dish or a, to a basin and we're starting to wash. And suddenly I remember at that moment telling to Hannah, Hannah, you see what's happening? Her hands are blue, my hands are clean. But in cleaning her hands, what's happening? Her hands are becoming clean, but my hands are turning blue. And I remember telling a two-year-old, Hannah, this is what Jesus did for us. You see that we came to him filthy and he came to us clean. But to wash us clean, it meant that all of our filth went to him and all of his cleanness came to us. It's an object lesson good enough for a two-year-old. You know what the sheet was? An object lesson for the apostle. Peter, have you not gotten what God has made clean? You are not to make unclean. That's what the entire gospel was about. That Jesus had come to take our filth on him, to give our filth to him, so that he could make us clean and become filthy in the process. This is the entire good news of Jesus. And God is doing everything that he can to get the chief apostle, 
to understand this simple object lesson. You know what I find especially neat about this story? It's this little detail about where the story took place. Did you catch that detail? This happened in the city of Joppa. For those of you that know your Bible and are familiar with Bible and love your Bible, can you think of another famous story in the city of Joppa? If you know the story, it's the story of Jonah. And what's the story of Jonah? Except that God comes to Jonah while he's in Joppa and tells this reluctant prophet that he has a message of mercy for Nineveh. That is a city filled with unclean Gentiles. And he wants Jonah to go there to deliver this message of mercy. And what is Jonah's response? He says, by no means, Lord, for I have never had anything to do with what is common or unclean. And yet, isn't it something that thousands of years later, to that very same city, the very same God, with the very same heart for the very same nations of the world, with the same love for the Gentiles and the unclean people, now comes again trying to overcome the resistance of his people to go out. And if you know the story of Jonah, the story of Jonah is not just how God changes the Gentile pagan city. The story of Jonah is how God changes the reluctant prophet. In the same way, Acts 10, Acts 10 is not just the conversion of the Gentile centurion. Acts 10 is the conversion of the reluctant apostle. You see, God is at work in Acts 10, so much so by the end of Acts 10, Cornelius will see Jesus differently. But by the end of Acts 10, Peter will see Cornelius differently. Don't miss that. Catch that. There's two things happening, both essential, both required a vision from God itself, both a thrust of the gospel, which is not only did someone need to come so that Cornelius would need to see Jesus differently, but a vision needed to come so that Peter would see Cornelius differently. And so here's the application. Here's the question for you. Have you come to see Jesus differently? If yes, then praise the Lord. What happened to Cornelius has happened to you. But the follow-up question would be, have you come, because you see Jesus differently, to see people who are different from you differently? Because that's what it means for you to have what happened to Peter happen to you. That's the question. So more practically, Seven Mile Road, who do you feel superior to? And please don't dismiss that as a question that applies to your neighbor and not to yourself. Surely the person next to you needs to hear that question, not you. Would you ask your soul, who is it, Seven Mile Road, who is it, brother or sister, that you feel superior to? It certainly might be along racial lines, certainly might be along ethnicity or gender, or maybe you puff up in pride thinking you're not racist and you don't look down at another gender, but maybe for you, it's people who aren't quite as educated as you are. Or maybe for you, it's people who aren't in the same social class as you are who can't hang in society like you can't, who aren't polished in culture the way that you are. We've all got these weird things that we find superiority in. We find righteousness in so many different weird things. It it could be our knowledge. It could be our possessions. It could be our, our sports knowledge. We'll find different things that make us feel like we're just a little bit better than everybody else. We find very weird things to find righteousness in. And here... God is trying to break down the walls that Cornelius had, but more than that, even the walls that Peter had. So, as the story continues, Cornelius' limo pulls up to pick up Peter. 
Peter goes with the entourage that Cornelius has sent. They get to Caesarea. Cornelius' home is there. Peter walks in. And here's what he says, verse 28. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me, and this is a beautiful line, but God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. Did you catch that? Peter's starting to get it. You yourselves know I shouldn't be here, but God is doing something to show me that I should not call any person common or unclean. Verse 29. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then, why did you send for me? I love that, by the way. Peter knows enough to say, look, I know God's been doing something in my life that I'm not supposed to call anyone common or unclean. So when your boys came, three sheets dropped down from heaven, three knocks on the door, three Gentiles showed up calling me to come. I got the picture. I'm not supposed to call anyone common or unclean. So here I am. I'm in your living room. And you know as a Jew, I'm not supposed to be anywhere near your, you, your house, your table, your food. So I have no idea. Could you tell me? I know God's doing something, so I came without objection. Could you let me know why am I here? Isn't that a great question? And, and what I realize is that means Peter genuinely has no idea why the Lord wanted him there. And I think to myself, for all Peter knows, maybe Peter thinks that he was brought here to heal someone. You know why? At the end of 9, Peter is seen having performed all these miracles, raised someone from the dead, raised a paralyzed person. And maybe Peter thought back to him and says, that wouldn't be so crazy. In the Gospels, we saw a centurion come to Jesus, say, I have a servant who's sick. Would you heal him? Jesus says, I'll come to your house. The centurion says, you don't even have to come to my house. If you think it, it'll be done, the man's healed. So maybe Peter thinks, well, just like the centurion fetched Jesus, here the centurion has fetched me. So what am I here for? Why did you bring me here? And then Cornelius says, here's why. I was praying. And a vision came to me and said that there's this one Peter in the house of this one Simon over by the sea that we should bring you here and that you'll tell us something from God. And so Cornelius says, I gathered everybody I knew. My friends are here. My family's here. My neighbors are here. My relatives are here. Everybody's here. And we've just been waiting for you to come so that you could tell us whatever you have to say. We know it's from the Lord. So just speak. We're ready to listen. This, by the way, is how I hope you sit for every sermon at Seven Mile Road. Genuinely. I genuinely hope you come every Sunday going, speak, because you're going to tell us something of what the Lord has to say. This is a preacher's dream. And so here's what Peter says, the most beautiful verse, 34. So Peter opened his mouth. Right, That itself is a great phrase. We've been seeing that in Acts so many times. You know, when Philip was sent to the Ethiopian, he opened his mouth. And every time, here's what the Christian's doing. They open their mouth. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. And then from there Peter goes on to tell this Gentile pagan Roman crowd about one Jesus of Nazareth and the life of Jesus and tells them about the death of Jesus, and tells them about the resurrection of Jesus, and that everyone who believes in Jesus will be forgiven of their sins. And then catch this, Peter doesn't even get to finish his sermon. He's rounding third and headed home. He's, he had this killer conclusion with this perfect illustration. They were all going to cry. He was going to sing a hymn. He had it all mapped out, but he can't even finish his sermon. Because verse 44 says, While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. 
And the believers from among the circumcised, that's the Jews who came with Peter, who had come with Peter, were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. Samaru, do you know what you just heard? You just heard the Gentile Pentecost. Because that's what it is. It's Acts 2 happening now in Acts 10. Because in Acts 2, there was a people of gathered and Peter spoke and they believed and the spirit fell and they spoke in tongues and there was baptisms. And now in Acts 10, there's people gathered and Peter speaks and they believe and the spirit falls and they speak in tongues and there's baptisms. And Luke is saying this to tell us, Theophilus, Korean preacher, a hundred Indian kids, Doug Logan, Seven Mile Road, this is how you came to be included. This is how you got swept in. You are not a red-headed stepchild. You haven't been brought in on the outside. You were given the same name, with the same faith, with the same spirit, with the same repentance, with the same tongues, and the same baptism. You are a part of the same family, with the same father, and the same God. So Theophilus, you should sing with all your might. Father Abraham had many sons, and many sons had Father Abraham, and I, just like Isaac himself, am one of them. And Sevmar wrote, you should sing the same thing. That Jesus Christ, through what he did, has brought you in all the way in so that you might share in what they shared in. This is what happens in Acts 10. Now, there's a hundred different ways you could apply this. I want to draw for you two quick observations. And there's a myriad of ways the Spirit of God can show you how to apply it. Just two observations from this text. The first, I think our culture will love. The second, I think our culture will struggle with. Here it is. God's vision for true diversity is really big. And God's path for true diversity is really narrow. The first, I think our culture as 21st century Americans will love. And the second, I think, will hate and struggle with. Here they are. First, God's vision for true diversity is really big. God's vision for diversity is wide and inclusive. The Christian message is a message which highlights and underlines the words all and every and everyone and everywhere. It's big and wide and it's as broad as the world. Listen, our culture would have you believe that we are the thinkers of and the champions of diversity. We're the ones who love words like inclusive. We're the ones that love words like all and everyone and everywhere. And yet, the scriptures would teach us the truth is we are stealing God's thunder. God's thunder. God thought of this a long time ago. This is a very old idea. Would you hear me? From day one, Christianity has been meant to be for all people, everywhere. I mean, you think of it, from the hour of its birth. You remember when we were in Acts 2? The Spirit falls, and they speak what? Not in Hebrew and Aramaic. But the moment the Spirit falls, they speak in all the languages of all the people gathered in that assembly. From the hour the Spirit fell, you did not have to learn Aramaic to come into what God was doing. You didn't have to learn Hebrew to come into what God was doing. Our Muslim friends would tell us 
that the revelation of Allah has come in one language. There's a heavenly language, a divine language. Our Muslim friends would tell us, if you want in on the principles, the absolutes, the right teachings, the actual words of God from Allah, you must learn Arabic. It is fixed in heaven as the divine language. But from the hour of Christianity's birth, would you consider this? Jesus spoke Aramaic. And yet from the moment it was written down, it was translated into a different language. It wasn't even his original words that were recorded. It was translated in its original document. And then translated from there all the world over. From the hour of our first book, the first birth of it, it was a translated message. Meant to go out. You know why? Because our gospel is of a God who translated himself into human flesh. He incarnated. He came in to be that which he was not. And so our message has been incarnated to all the cultures of the world from the hour it began. It has always been for all people, always been in all languages. This is the way that Christianity was. You, you think of this, brother or sister, with me. I don't know if this is politically correct either, but you think of this with me. Would you consider in your mind the profile of a Hindu? Would you consider in your mind the profile of a Buddhist? Would you consider in your mind the profile of a Muslim? Now I'd ask you, would you consider in your mind the profile of a Christian? And let me tell you, if you thought to yourself a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant male, you'd be off by about a hundred years. About a hundred years ago, that would have been true. But you see, from the hour of its birth, Christianity's center has always been moving. It started in the Middle East, and then a few centuries later, it would come to Europe. But now, researchers and scholars and Christian missionaries would tell us it's moving more global and more south. In fact, I remember hearing one scholar say, now the proper picture of a global Christian would probably be a Nigerian Pentecostal woman. That's what Christianity looks like in the world today. I mean, could you think of this? Do you know that there are two times as many Protestants in Nigeria now? as they are in Germany, and Germany being the birthplace of the Protestant Reformation, Germany being the home of Martin Luther himself, and now there are two times as many Protestants in Nigeria as there are in Germany. Why? Because this message has always been for all, has always meant to be for all people from everywhere to the ends of the earth. I have been stunned by the fact that Peter was genuinely stunned in Acts 10. I don't know if it strikes you, but it strikes me that when he got to Cornelius' house, he was genuinely stunned. And here's why that amazes me. Peter had heard Matthew 28, and Jesus said, go and make disciples of all nations. Peter had heard Acts 1.8, you be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And I genuinely don't know if until that point, Peter just figured, maybe he wants us to go to the Jewish diaspora to the ends of the earth. Because I kid you not, he got to Acts 10, and he said, now I see God doesn't show partiality. It's not till Acts 10 that Peter understood, oh my goodness, he intends to include the Gentiles. You see, Jesus' vision of diversity is much bigger than anything the world had ever seen. It's bigger than anything our culture thought up today. It's old. It's from God's beginning, his plan for the nations. And this net that Jesus was catching fish men from was from all the world. There's never been anything bigger 
than Christianity, anything more diverse, anything more global than Christianity, that's not a biased sentence from a Christian preacher. I want you to hear that. It's fact to say, it's fact to say, nothing on this planet, nothing on this pale blue dot in the Milky Way galaxy has ever had the diverse and global following that the message of Jesus Christ has. No political party has, no worldview has, no other religion has, no sports team has, no rock band has. Nothing in the world has had a diverse and global following like Jesus of Nazareth. This is the Christian message. The Christian vision for the world is diverse and wide and inclusive. And here's the second thing. God's vision for diversity is big. God's path for true diversity is really narrow. God's path for, really, for diversity is really narrow. Here's what I mean. Christian diversity is not built around the idea of diversity. It's built around a person. His name is Jesus Christ. See, you hear both in the Christian gospel. The Christian gospel will say things like, God desires for all people everywhere to be saved. You hear how inclusive it is? And the very next verse will say, through the one mediator, Jesus Christ. You hear how narrow it is? How inclusive and exclusive it is at the same time? So it is. And here's why. Here's why Christianity isn't built around diversity. It's because diversity as an idea is not strong enough to maintain diversity. Would you hear that? And don't let that fly by your head. Diversity as a value isn't strong enough to maintain diversity. Let me ask you, can you think of any culture in the world more accepting of diversity than ours? Anywhere where it's more welcome than our culture. And yet I'd ask you, have you watched the news in just a year or two, and are we maintaining our diversity and unity? Or would everything in the news tell you we are as segmented and separated and segregated as we have ever been? Nobody values diversity more than us, and nowhere is it seen more fractured than with us. That means the value of diversity isn't strong enough in itself to obtain, maintain, sustain diversity. And the Christian vision is there's one person who was strong enough to pull people from every tribe and tongue together and hold them together. Listen, diversity is really hard. In Acts 11, for the sake of time, I won't give you there, but the first 18 verses, the people come back, Peter comes back, and and they ask him, his Jewish friends, you ate where, with who, and you ate what? They can't get it. And even Peter, who has to defend and go, listen, this is what God was doing. What do you want me to do? Even this Peter, do you know in Galatians 2, he will shrink back. You catch that? In, in Galatians 2, Peter is eating barbecue pork with some of his Gentile friends when all of a sudden some Jews come and look down at him and Peter shrinks back. And when he shrinks back, here's the point. The apostle Paul comes to him and Paul doesn't say, Peter, what are you doing? We signed up for diversity. Right? What are you, what are you doing? You're reneging on our commitment to diversity. That's not what Paul says. Paul comes to up to him and says, Peter, what are you doing? You're out of step with Jesus. It's, it's not diversity. It's, you're out of step with Jesus. That's why at Seven Mile Road, when we find prejudice or ethnocentrism or racism among us, we're not going to look one another in the eye and say, we signed up for diversity. We're going to call one another and say, brother, you're out of step with Jesus. You're out of step with the gospel. You think of this. This church was planted nine years ago. 
When it started, it was 95% or more Indian American. Nine years later, by our most last count, we are 49% Indian American. We were 2% other. We are now 51% other. Why? Because this is what Acts 10 is about. And listen to me. That was done by Jesus, and it will be sustained by Jesus. It will not be you and me looking to each other and saying, we have to be committed to diversity. It'll be by you and me looking to each other and saying, we have to be committed to Jesus. And as long as we enter through that one exclusive man, this church will be as inclusive as the gospel is. Our message is inclusive to the whole world, but exclusively through Jesus of Nazareth. The Christian message is as wide as the whole world, wide enough a field to fit people from every tribe and tongue. But the door into that field is really narrow. It comes through the person, Jesus Christ. And so we want our gospel and our proclamation of the gospel to be as exclusive and inclusive as the gospel is. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, you are worthy of the worship of all peoples, for you are the creator of all the world, and you created all human beings in your own image and likeness. Therefore, it is right and good and fitting that all human beings everywhere should worship you, and that all human beings everywhere should look to the Savior you sent into the world, whose blood was shed to make all unclean people clean. We give you thanks and praise you and worship you today for your wide and big and huge and world-encompassing gospel. It was big enough to fit us who were not sons of Abraham and make us the children of Abraham. And so we pray that you would produce worship in our hearts. We pray also that as a count of this, we would see our brothers and sisters differently, that you would convict us of where we are out of step with Jesus and bring us closer to reflect who you are and what you want us to be. We pray that you would do this and more. In Jesus' name, amen.